welcome back to The Curtain Cubicle. This is episode two of It Happened Here. I'm joined today by the soundscape of the world's most annoying pigeon, who will not shut up, so you might hear that in the background. And as always, my sidekicks, Scout and Jellybean, are snoring next to me on the bed because they don't work for a living. This episode is called The Short Life and Long Legacy of Sheldine Human. When I sat down to write this one, I could have called it The Innocence of Pink Panties or Knowledge You Really Wish You Didn't Have in Your Brain. The story is full of disturbing and mature material. It deals with violence against children and sexual assault, so please bear that in mind before listening. Sheldine Human was born on the 2nd of April 1999 to mother Elise and father Vickers. By the time we enter the story, her parents are divorced and Sheldine lives with her mom in Pretoria, which is a city north of Johannesburg, South Africa. We don't know a lot about Sheldine's early years, although when your life ends at seven, they are all early years. We do know that Elise was struggling financially. She was working two low-paying jobs and had moved the two of them into a commune or a shared house. There were some 39 people who lived in that house with them. And it was really just a typical suburban house in, uh, in a neighborhood called Pretoria Gardens. So how they fitted 39 people in there, I don't quite fathom. Sheldine attended the nearby primary school, where her teachers described her as friendly and self-confident, very independent for her age, and a pretty child with her straight blonde hair cut into a very blunt fringe, which is bangs for my imaginary American audience. On the evening of Sunday 18th Feb 2007, at about 6pm, Elise went to go socialise with a friend who lived in a flat at the back of the commune property. February is summer in South Africa and the sun would still be up. Her daughter was playing in the front garden with another little girl who lived there. Hmm. Okay, pause here for a second. We do know this other little girl's name. It is public information. But I personally feel uncomfortable using it here. For one, she'd be in her early 20s now, probably uh, spent the last few years trying to deal with her past and not be defined by her proximity to this iconic case of true crime in the country. And I think she deserves that space, deserves whatever anonymity she can carve out for herself. If she chooses then to out herself again in later years, that you know, then we respect that. But for ease of reference, I'm going to call her Mary in the story, and that's not her real name. Mary's mom calls her in for bath time, leaving Sheldine in the yard alone. By 6.45, just as the sun is starting to set, Elise heads to the front to collect Sheldine so that they can go get a jump on prepping for the school day tomorrow, blah, blah, blah. But she's not where she's supposed to be. So Elise looks for her inside. She asks all the other residents. They open all the doors, but no one has seen her. They start calling for Sheldine in the street, and soon all the neighbours are coming out of their houses trying to help, but there's no sign of her. Just a few people who said that they had seen her playing earlier in the day, as well as out with Mary and and another adult. Ooh, that was a tough tongue twister for some reason. They ask Mary about this, and she tells them about going to the park with her godfather and Sheldine, but... She says they had all come back to the house together and that was before playing in the yard at about six. 
With her panic rising, Elise, who doesn't have a car, speed walks a few blocks to the nearest police station. There, she tries to open a case, but is told that she can't do so without a photograph. This is mind-boggling to me. Uh, just open the case and get moving. I did a little research, and as far as I can tell, taking a photograph with you is advised on all government and police sources. But it's not required, which makes sense, right? Because not having a photo of someone shouldn't preclude you from reporting them missing. It's an access to justice issue. So, as best as I can tell, this was a case of either a poorly trained or simply negligent police officer. It's also such a wasted opportunity. Remember, we're talking about this tiny, small, small window of time here. At this point, Sheldine's been gone less than an hour. Nonetheless, with that bit of clunking bureaucracy holding her back for no goddamn good reason, Elise goes back home in search of a photo. She's intercepted at the commune by a friend who has a car, and this friend offers to drive Elise to ask Mary's godfather, Andrew Jordan, if he knows anything. But he hasn't anything new to offer them, just echoing what Mary said. He took them both home after the park. This roundabout route then brings her back to the Hercules police station, where, photo in hand, they open a case at about 8pm. Sheldine has been gone just 60 to 90 minutes at this point. They search for her into the night. They stop everyone walking down the streets. But it's like she's been beamed into outer space. There's just no sign of her. On Monday morning, February 19th, Elise calls the school to let them know that Sheldine is missing. And they thankfully spring into action, printing up flyers and canvassing for the neighbourhood. A group of volunteers, mostly moms from the surrounding suburbs, come together to help out. They too hand out these flyers, they go door to door, they search all the open land, the park, the shopping centres. This ragtag group of volunteers will go on to become an important missing persons organisation in South Africa called the Pink Ladies, but I'll tell you more about that later. The investigating officer who is assigned to the case is a guy called Lieutenant Colonel Andre Nietling. He's a very experienced and respected investigator, but they really have almost nothing to go on. No sightings, no forensics, the searches have turned up nothing. All they can do now is relook at what they do know, including speaking to Andrew Jordan. They want to know if he spotted anyone in the park that day, Someone perhaps paying a little too much attention to the girls? Someone who could have followed them home? So they bring Jordan in as a witness, but Andre Neertlung says that his suspicions were raised almost immediately based on Jordan's demeanour in that first discussion. He had nothing, to instinct, nothing but instinct to go on, a feeling about how Jordan held himself in that interview room, how he answered their questions with a certain arrogance to him. Without a reason to detain him, he is released. But now, at least, there is someone in their sights. Someone they can start looking into. A further week of searching goes by without progress. I can only imagine Elise's desperation in this time. There's this heartbreaking moment. It's just a gut punch of a quote. In the Crimes Uncovered episode about this case... Big trigger warning here, please, for sexual assault. 
Elise says to the interviewer, I know she might have been raped. I know that. But I was just praying that she was alive. This quote, the thought of a mom praying that her daughter has gigantic quotation marks just been raped is a very disturbing one. And it does speak to the level of sexual violence that we see in this country. It is endemic. It is off the charts. It has been described as the highest incidence of rape in any country not at war. And although this is an extremely distressing topic for me to research, for you to listen to, understanding and countering sexual violence is a passion of mine. I even wrote my master's dissertation on how we report rape in South African news coverage. And so I'm afraid we will not be shying away from this topic in future episodes of the podcast. I have put a link to this Crimes Uncovered episode into the show notes, and I do recommend watching the whole thing. They have particularly good interviews with the police figures involved in this case. As I said before that detour, Nertling says they had begun to feel quite desperate. The only lead that they had was Jordan, and they had nothing on him except a feeling. So they ask him to take a lie detector test. At the end of it, the polygrapher says he has been truthful in his replies to the questions. So there right there is just more evidence for Saruti, Hannah, Ash and Elena, etc. that polygraphs are total bunk. Despite the truthful uh, status of his answer to that lie detector, the police still like him for this. And they search his property. And here they would find another maddening red flag, but nothing to tie him directly to Sheldine. That red flag, though, it's pretty creepy. In addition to all the model centerfolds he's used as decor in his room, like a teenager, even though he's not, there are pictures of young girls everywhere. And this is really odd, but apparently many of those pictures are of his own sister who had died, his adult sister, and the pictures had been manipulated, they don't really say how, to make her look like a young girl. So yes, all the alarm bells and red flags there. And curiously, they also found a scrapbook of news cuttings about serial murder investigations, and a big portion of these clippings were specifically about the super sleuth himself, Brigadier Peter Bailefeld. In the first episode, I spoke quite a lot about Pete Bellefeld, but I wanted to add a little to that today. This man was a bit of a legend in South Africa and had been involved in so many of the country's most notorious crimes and investigations. His full name was Petrus Erasmus Johannes van Staden Bellefeld. If there are any Afrikaans-speaking listeners in my imaginary audience, please forgive me for my terrible accent on that. His colleagues just called him Piet Bale, and sometimes Die Bale, which directly translates as the Axe. He worked in the police service for four decades, officially retiring in 2010, but he carried on consulting and investigating privately. Sadly, on the 24th of May 2017, Piet died aged 67 following a diagnosis and a short but brutal battle with stage 4 lung cancer. There's a really great obit written by Antoinette Muller that appears on a number of websites. She writes, quote, 
he will forever be remembered as one of the best detectives ever to have the job. He had a 99% success rate in a career that spanned almost 40 years. It continues, quote, His profile reads like something out of a gonzo script. A chain smoker who mixed headache powder with Coca-Cola and referred to serial killers and other criminals as his clients. It's the stuff from scripts, but sometimes truth is stranger than fiction, and the criminals Bailefeld brought to book were sometimes more twisted than anything you ever saw on TV. End quote. It's a great obit, and I will link it, obviously. During his career, Bailefeld uh, assisted Scotland Yard, the FBI, and Mossad, and was even consulting on a TV show loosely based on his career. The show was called the show is called Debail. It's in Afrikaans but with English subtitles. So if you fancy trying a crime drama from another country, look out for it. I'm gonna end this little diversion with a quote from his own CV. I found this on Times Live and that link also show notes. But I like that this is in his words. So again I quote Being a policeman has been my mission and my passion for the past 38 years, and spreading the message of justice will remain my vision for the rest of my life. If I had to summarize everything I believe and hopefully represent and symbolize in one word, it would have to be hope. Of course, Bailefeld did not sound like he was doing a high school English oral like I do. He had a very gravelly, gritty voice. And he was a gruff man. So it's interesting to me that what he felt he stood for still was hope beneath all that gruffness. Anyway, it seems that Jordan was also a big Bailefeld fan. So when they brought him in again, the Pretoria police reached out to the axe himself, organizing for him to come take a crack at Jordan. 36 minutes. That's how long Jordan's interview with Pete was. 36 minutes, including considerable small talk. And Pete Bale does this great dance of comforting and challenging, comforting and challenging. It's, it's a masterclass in interviewing. He asks something desperately normal, like, what do you do for a living? And then he'll throw an accusation at him, like telling him he comes off nervous. Catching him in a slip-up letting it go and then circling back. He offers him a cigarette and they smoke together. Then Pete confronts him with direct accusations. In 36 minutes, Jordan is talked into a corner, letting slip how he knew that Sheldine had been wearing pink panties and then trying to cover this up as innocent, saying, oh, he just noticed that when she was on the swings. But he had been bested and he begins confessing ending with an offer to take them to where he disposed of the body. Jordan takes the police to an overgrown plot behind the fresh produce market in Pretoria West, and he points to a manhole. He tells them he dropped the little girl into the stormwater drain beneath it. The dog unit goes in, and eventually they find her remains. She's washed 40 metres down into the system, little thing that she was. When they finally found her, her body was in such an advanced stage of decomposition 
having been subjected to water and the heat of a Pretoria summer for weeks, her final cause of death was undetermined. When Andrew Jordan is tried for this crime the following year, hundreds of people showed up outside the courthouse wearing pink to pay tribute to Sheldine and show support to her family. In court, this trashbag human recanted his interview confessions and he claims that he had been coerced through physical and psychological torture essentially to confess and he stuck rigidly to that in court. Despite the fact that he had known where the body was, I don't know how he talked his way around that. Once again, Pete Bale came to the rescue. He testified about the original confession and his measured and meticulous testimony showed Jordan's claims to be as flimsy as they were. Pete Bale explained how Jordan, Jordan confessed to sexually assaulting Sheldine, that the little brave girl fought him and actually ended up kicking him in the nuts, and then he snapped and strangled her to unconsciousness before dropping her body down the manhole. The final nail in the coffin for Jadan's case was an incredibly brave and shocking testimony from his other victim, Mary, his own goddaughter, testified that he had sexually abused her too, and that she'd seen how he looked at Sheldine that day and worried about her friend. This testimony was presented in camera, meaning that she didn't have to give her, her statements in front of the accused, but she did have to come into court to identify him, which she bravely did. In 2008, on the 9th of June, judgment in this case was handed down. Andrew Jordan was found guilty of abduction, sexual assault and the murder of Sheldine Human and sentenced to life. A further 33 years were added for additional charges, including the rape of his goddaughter. On the 13th of Feb 2012, just days short of the five-year anniversary of Sheldine's disappearance, Jordan was actually killed by a fellow prisoner in Leokuk prison in Johannesburg. Accounts of the attacks vary a little, but as far as I can tell, Jordan was sleeping on the top bunk of a bunk bed and a cellmate pulled him from it. He landed headfirst on the bare cement floor. A correctional services spokesperson told News24 that this fellow inmate had been serving 25 years for murder and robbery and that he beat Jordan's head against the floor repeatedly until he died. And that is pretty much the end of the timeline for this crime. But there are two points I want to raise briefly before signing off. Firstly, in the Crimes Uncovered episode, they speak to a criminologist who describes Jordan as a classic, immature paedophile, timid, seeking the company of children, lacking uh, that sense of belonging, um, a history of alcohol abuse, and a low IQ. And it's this that the criminologist says helped him pass the lie detector. The prof mentions that Jordan showed characteristics associated with antisocial personality disorder and psychopathy. With, the, with this particular mix of psychology, he was able to really distance himself emotionally from what he had done. But again, polygraphs suck for anything other than an intimidation tactic, in my opinion. 
True Crime South Africa, which is a podcast by Nicole Engelbrecht, has an episode on this case. And she makes reference to Hunting Warhead, which is another podcast series that does this incredible job of unpacking pedophilia, its roots and presentations, and just how we can go about tackling this issue from a preventative standpoint. I would highly recommend both of these shows if this is something you'd like to hear more about. Nicole also speaks a little more on Sheldine's living conditions before her death, the poverty and hunger she experienced, and how her living conditions may have contributed to the circumstances that made her particularly vulnerable to predators like Andrew Jordan. Secondly, Sheldine's life was cut short in an incredibly tragic way, but if there is such a thing as a silver lining in a horrific case like this, it might be that Sheldine's abduction led directly to the founding of the Pink Ladies Organization, an NGO that does significant work in creating awareness in cases of missing children and women. If you want to know more about them, please search Pink Ladies Crime Watch on Facebook. I don't think enjoyed is the right word, but if you found this podcast interesting, please consider subscribing wherever you're currently listening and following It Happened Here on Insta, Twitter and Facebook. It Happened Here is a Ready Freddy production.